Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. Whether you are in the room live, watching live online, later on demand, or listening to our podcast, our prayer is for you to experience the life-changing power of God in your life today. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the team here at Dayspring. That team is made up of people committed to helping you grow. People grow here because our team loves to challenge, encourage, and equip people to become more like Jesus. If this is your first time visiting Dayspring, we want you to know that this is the kind of church where you get to be you. We're just like you, imperfect people on a journey. We're allowing Jesus to make something beautiful out of our broken and often messy lives, learning to live like him, a little more today than yesterday, a little more tomorrow than today. Even if you aren't sure that you're ready to be on that journey with us, maybe you are skeptical about the claims of Jesus or skeptical of his followers. Well, this is still a great place, a safe place to explore and ask questions as you look for answers. We're asking those same questions and looking for answers too. So I think we can be pretty good company on your journey. So welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church by checking out our Facebook page or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find a discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, let's join our service. The eerie silence betrayed the peaceful setting as he rode into the camp. The normal sounds of an army preparing for battle were absent. In the void, a tension hung thicker than the morning fog that had begun, just begun to burn off. Though he didn't yet understand the reasons for it, he could almost smell the fear as his eyes darted to and fro searching for his brothers. Every face was etched with the hopelessness that comes from defeat. Yet there were no tents for the wounded, and they had clearly not even begun to wage war against the Philistines. For 40 days, these men had been held hostage in this spot. For 40 days, the adrenaline that ran through their veins as they anticipated the coming fight had been replaced with a deep-seated dread. Snaky tendrils of fear coiled their way into the souls of men, usually thirsting for blood. For 40 days, the nation had awaited word of the outcome, mothers and fathers hoping to see their sons. Daughters longing for word that their intended future was still safe. It was this worry that drove his father to send him to see what was going on at the battle site. The absence of communication had created a narrative of grief. A word of a victory or loss had never taken this long to arrive. Perhaps David could bring the news they all craved. As he continued to make his way through the camp, his eyes confirmed that which he never expected to see. The bravest men of Israel were cowering. Suddenly, 
Though no command was given, almost as one they began to pick up their swords, stretch their arms, and tighten their garments as they slowly moved toward their battle positions at the front of the camp. He quickened his pace as the bustle increased around him. He had spied his brothers as the crescendo of silence reached its peak, but the activity now slowed his progress. Too many questions were running through his head, and he hoped for answers before being dismissed and being sent back home. Before he could reach them, a booming voice from across the valley began to speak. He dropped everything and raced to the front lines to see what was happening. Arrogance and disdain dripped from each word as they left the mouth of the giant. That really was the only word you could use to describe him. At more than nine feet tall, he was mammoth. Did his parents know that he would grow to be the size of a small mountain when they gave him the name Goliath? Send me your bravest warrior. We will fight mano a mano. If he wins, we will surrender to you. If I win, you will surrender to us. Every single man witnessing the intimidation of Goliath knew what would happen when he won. After 40 days of trembling at the sound of his voice, there was no doubt in their minds that surrender was inevitable. Their motionless silence served only to delay that eventuality. Their imaginations ran wild, fearing the days after surrender. It was likely that they, being a threat to the future of the Philistines, would die. If not, certain enslavement would follow. And as the Philistines advanced into their territory, their wives and children would be captured and brutalized and their lands and riches pillaged. Surrender would be devastating. Let's be honest. Surrender is a four-letter word. They didn't like the thought of surrender any more than we would. Even Jesus wasn't excited about his surrender. In the moments before uh, his betrayal by Judas, Jesus went with some of his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. Leaving them behind, he went a little further and bowed with his face to the ground praying, My Father, if it is possible, Let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Jesus knew what lay ahead would be very more painful on every level than anyone could imagine. He would be mocked, stripped, beaten, then nailed to to a cross. The physical pain would be excruciating. The emotional distress would be unbearable. The spiritual disconnection from God, unimaginable to him and to us, for we are a people who have never known the enduring intimacy that Jesus experienced with the Father. Yet, Jesus pressed on, surrendered to the will of his Father, committed to a plan conceived before the seeds of time were sown. His example beckons us to live the same life of surrender. 
if only the outlook weren't so bleak. We don't have many positive examples of surrender. Napoleon surrendered at Waterloo and spent the rest of his life in exile. Geronimo surrendered and spent the rest of his life in prison. Following the withdrawal of American forces from Afghanistan in 2021, the Taliban forced the surrender of the civil government and Afghani military. Widespread human rights violations and the relinquishment of many women's rights have followed. The wicked witch in The Wizard of Oz wanted the Emerald City to surrender Dorothy so she could capitalize on the power vacuum and strengthen her position of terror. Hebrews 11 is filled with the names of people who surrendered but still experienced the blessing of hardship. Is it any wonder we, go, we generally go to great lengths to avoid surrender? And yet, as followers of Jesus, it is a life of surrender we have been called to live. We have chosen this life. We made the decision to follow Jesus. It wasn't forced upon us, and surrender isn't an optional feature for followers of Jesus. It's a part of the standard package, and we know this. So why do we fight every step of the way? Why do we try to dictate the terms of surrender to the God that we've agreed to surrender to? You know, I'll, I'll follow you, but I want some say in how my life goes. On September 2nd, 1945, a representative of Japanese Emperor Hirohito formally signed the Japanese instrument of surrender aboard the USS Missouri. Reeling from the August 6th detonation of the world's first atomic bomb over the Japanese city of Hiroshima, followed by the dropping of a second atomic bomb on Nagasaki, Japan began the journey of rebuilding after a devastating war. Though he and his leaders had tried to get Russia to negotiate terms more favorable to the Japanese, ultimately their unconditional surrender was made according to the terms dictated by the Allies led in the Pacific by General Douglas MacArthur, supreme commander of Allied forces. Unlike surrenders of ancient days, the Japanese surrender document declared, we do not intend that the Japanese shall be enslaved as a race or destroyed as a nation. General MacArthur then began the process of helping to refocus and rebuild the Japanese economy. Through, though that era in history was filled with tragic decisions made by world leaders, few could argue that in the aftermath of the Japanese surrender, the rebuilding of Japan's economy was successful. Financially, their rebirth led them to world domination in the 1980s. Their surrender, though humbling, allowed them to retain the uniqueness of their identity while building something new that benefited not just them, but the entire world. The list of Japanese companies that have helped change the world in every area of industry includes Sony, Canon, Yamaha, Toyota, Honda, Nissan, Mitsubishi Financial, and many more. As Christians, we are called to unconditional surrender to the God of the universe. We commit to living for Him, not for ourselves, which is not 
an easy process. Surrender is never easy. In fact, it is often humbling and hard work because a surrendered life is rebuilt by God from the ground up. We have to be trained to think like Jesus. We don't naturally do that on our own. We have to be trained to act like Jesus. We don't do that on our own either. The first car I ever owned, I purchased from my grandparents. It wasn't cool. Just a brown Ford Escort wagon with a stick shift, no air conditioning, windows that I actually had to roll up manually, anyone remember those? And no cruise control. I know, I suffered. But while it, it might be lacking the cool features, uh, the flexible payment plan more than made up for any of the other weaknesses. A few years later, when my grandparents upgraded, once again, I had the chance to purchase my second car from them, a fabulous four-door Mercury Topaz sedan. This time, I was traveling in style in an automatic with electric windows and cruise control. But before you mock me, remember the payment plan. Though I always paid off the loan, my grandparents were very understanding when money was tight. They never lowered my credit score by reporting my late payments. So there. Since I finally had it, I made the decision to use the cruise control whenever I could as I drove the speed limit. Yes, the actual speed limit. Most of you remember that it wasn't the free-for-all that it is now on our freeways. The speed limit was only 55 miles an hour at the time on Oregon freeways, a snail's pace even then. You see, I had, I had noticed something when I didn't have cruise control to meter my speed. At 55 miles per hour, I would come up behind someone going slower and have to pass them. Then I was going 60 miles per hour, which didn't seem too fast. Of course, someone slower was always ahead of me, which meant frustration because they were in my way. So I just had to pass them, and all of a sudden I was going 65, then 70, and the thought of slowing down to the crawl of 55 miles per hour made me nauseous. I was in a hurry after all. I started paying attention to the traffic around me. Do you know that those people I passed often came up behind me at the exit while I was waiting for the great equalizer, a traffic light, to change to green? Like, what did my speed gain me anyway other than tension and frustration? And mathematically, the time difference was negligible at best. So I decided to drive the speed limit. Man, did my Christian friends give me a hard time I was engaged to Didi, <laughs> yeah. I was engaged to Didi at the time, and her family, including Didi, thought I was a lunatic and teased me every chance they got, which was often because we liked to be together and she lived with her parents. I even had a conversation with some Christian friends at work who tried to justify their need for speed by saying, no policeman will give you a ticket for going five miles an hour over the speed limit. It wasn't that I didn't want a speeding ticket, though I didn't. It wasn't that I was just obeying the law, though I was. It wasn't an external factor that brought about a change. It was an internal one. 
My argument with all of my Christian friends wasn't based on following state law. It was an appeal to a higher principle. I'm a citizen of heaven before I am a, citizens of, a citizen of Oregon. And driving whatever speed I wanted brought out the worst in me. It made me short-tempered, unkind, and impatient, and those things didn't honor God. I didn't like who I became behind the wheel of my totally cool car. Ultimately, I wasn't driving the speed limit because I had to, but because I wanted to. I just liked who I was at 55 miles per hour more than I liked myself at 70 miles per hour. I had experienced the emotional and spiritual freedom that came with cruise control, and I wanted it more than I wanted to arrive at my destination 60 seconds earlier. Ultimately, it, it wasn't about my speed, but had become an issue of the heart. It became about surrender. Although, full disclosure, I don't drive the same way anymore. Once I freed myself from all of the negative stuff, I became a bit sloppier with the speed limit. We are not so different from the Israelites of old. We have believed the lie that, uh, to, that our total surrender to Jesus will lead to our enslavement, not our freedom. Surrender will hold us back, not allow us to soar. So we cling tightly to the illusion of control, unwilling to completely surrender in faith, trusting in God's plan, his good plan for our lives. The enemy of our soul has woven lie upon lie to undermine our belief in the goodness of God and what he wants for us. And so we cannot possibly trust him with all of our lives. He doesn't want us to have fun. His rules are intended to keep us down. So like the Japanese emperor, we try to negotiate a partial surrender so we can retain some sense of our own autonomy. But partial obedience isn't surrender. Living to not get caught isn't surrender. Doing the bare minimum isn't full surrender. The Old Testament is filled with passages describing people who lived like this. They obeyed the law by making the right sacrifices at the right time. They did the right thing on the outside for others to see, but still offended God because they didn't honor him from the inside out with the entirety of their lives. Surrender is a heart issue. God wants your heart. Deuteronomy 6.5 doesn't tell us to love the Lord our God with part of our heart or most of our heart or when it's convenient. It says, and you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Now, most of us here, most of you watching online, odds are that you already follow God-ish. And for us, it isn't any secret that an authentic Christian life is one that's being transformed from the inside out, becoming more like Christ day by day and moment by moment. It requires ongoing sacrifice. It requires commitment. It isn't a one-time choice followed by a bunch of rules that we must obey until we get the golden key to our eternal mansion. Being transformed from the inside out isn't becoming a better version of ourselves. If it were, then speeding through life, trying not to get a ticket would be the answer. That's the way most of us live. 
We dance around the edges of sin, trying to do better, be better, while at the same time trying to keep our feet in both worlds, to enjoy the trappings that this world has to offer. And when we do trip into sin, we apologize to God and go back to skirting the edges of sin, trying to do better than last time, be better than last time. We are convenience Christians. When it's convenient, we will try to live the way he's called us to live. When it's not convenient, when we just don't feel like it, we do our own thing. I don't think we realize how far from surrender that mindset is. We're just so comfortable doing things the way the world does things, approaching life the way the world approaches life, that we forget that God's ways are not our ways. He doesn't call us to live a better version of the world's way of living. He, his surrender calls us to something completely different. That's what Jesus offers. A better way, a different way. If the old way had worked, we wouldn't have needed Jesus. Well, yes, we would, because the Old Testament Israelites couldn't seem to follow the old plan consistently enough to satisfy the law. So Jesus offers a completely different way of thinking about life and what a surrendered life should look like. The Gospel of Mark relates this conversation between Jesus and a rich man. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. <laughs> this conversation wasn't really about possessions. This rich man had done all the right things on the outside, but the point of it all had yet to seep into his heart. He wanted the best of both worlds. He wanted to pick and choose his surrender, which meant in the end, he was still owned by something other than God. He hadn't surrendered and walked away from the perfect opportunity to do so face to face with Jesus. Which begs the question, what owns you? As with the rich man, there is a gap between what we have already surrendered and full surrender. That gap keeps us from becoming all that we should become. It is the part of our lives that we cling to for whatever reason because we don't trust it in the hands of our Father. Ultimately, it is disobedience. That gap steals from the blessing of God in our lives. Now, obviously, we'll never reach 100% surrender on this side of heaven. Even the most righteous among us still have a gap. It might be a sliver, but it is still a gap. 
We are human after all, living in a broken world with broken bodies and minds. But a life that is surrendering is committed to closing that gap day by day. A surrendering life is actively shedding the trappings, the values of this world in exchange for the next. A surrendering life is intentionally choosing to believe like, think like, and act like Jesus every moment of every day. That's what Jesus meant when after another conversation with his disciples about his identity, he turned to the, to the crowds gathered to hear him speak and perform miracles. The Gospel of Luke tells us, Then he said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will, sa it, you will save it. Arthur Pink, a 19th century Bible teacher from England, once said, taking up my cross means a life voluntarily surrendered to God. We choose whether to daily surrender our lives to the will of the one who saved us. He'll never force us to do so. That isn't his way. But ultimately, this is our calling, period. End of story. When you look at it from the world's perspective, it's not a very attractive proposition. It doesn't sound any better than any other kind of surrender we've talked about or can imagine. But here's the deal. We serve a good God. And though he deserves far more than the sacrifice of our lives, the surrender of our will in complete obedience to his plans and purposes, though he deserves all of that and more, and we deserve nothing in return. That's not the way he works. There are blessings beyond measure for those who allow him to rebuild their lives from the rubble of living for themselves. And isn't that what we really want? We all want our lives to be blessed by God. I'm just not sure we're all on the same page as to what a blessed life actually looks like. We'd like it to be without trouble at work or home, just relational harmony. We'd like it to be pain-free with no sickness. We'd like it to be easy, uncomplicated. And if it led to financial blessing as well, that'd be a bonus. And there are certain sects of Christianity that believe this kind of blessing is proof that, that God is at work in you and that you are walking in the Spirit. That kind of blessing is not what the Bible promises. I mean, tell that to the Apostle Paul, the inspired author of much of the New Testament. He wrote, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, clearly, he was a man surrendering and committed to closing the gap in his life. Of anyone in all of Christendom, his life should have been overflowing with this kind of blessing if it was what the Bible promised. Instead, in one of his letters to the church in Corinth, he boasted about his blessing. Are they servants of Christ? I know I sound like a madman, but I have served him far more. I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. 
Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Third, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and day adrift at sea. I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. And I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I have worked hard and long and during many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then, besides all this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. When I think about the blessing of God in my life, I tend to avoid praying for beatings, prisons, shipwrecks, and stoning. Call me crazy. Actually, I think we reap the blessing of Paul far more than he ever did while he was alive. If he had given up, if he had lacked the fortitude to press on in spite of the obstacles he faced, we may never have known the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was instrumental in spreading the gospel throughout the known world, the spirit of which was embedded in the churches he discipled and has carried through the church today. Interestingly enough, the Hebrew word for blessing is rooted in the concept of surrender. It evokes the image of bending at the knee to present a gift. Bending from the weakest joint in our body to surrender ourselves, and in surrender, the filling of your palms as water from a pool. The receiving of God's strength to compensate for your weakness. For more years than I deserve, my assistant Annette has served to multiply my efforts in ministry. Without diminishing any sense of her own self and purpose, she has learned how I like things for which I'm responsible to be done. She's been a student of what I care about and in all the right ways don't care about. She has learned how I want people to be treated. Not that she wouldn't do this naturally. She is a very nice person. But she knows how I want people to be treated even when they don't deserve it. She has learned to think like I think in a variety of areas, and it only serves to improve her effectiveness and mine. She makes me look good. She shores up my weaknesses and magnifies my strengths. However, she is only as effective as I allow her to be. I could choose to be a control freak and do everything for myself. I could not trust that she is working on my behalf to help me further the small part of God's kingdom that I have been given to shepherd. I could assume that I know best and second guess every decision that she makes on my behalf. I could go blindly through life thinking that I really don't need her and that she was a hindrance to my progress. Even though I am technically her boss, she is only able to bless me when I surrender to her role in my life. You see, through surrender, we offer our lives and receive God's strength to compensate for our weaknesses as our blessing. 
I believe there are many other blessings as well on this side of eternity, but this is, a, this is the big one. I don't know about you, but I need God's strength to navigate the complexities of life in this fallen world that is growing more and more antagonistic toward followers of Jesus. So let's get back to your, cap, your gap. You know what it is. You know that part of your life that you're holding back from complete surrender. There's probably more than one part, if we're being honest. Pick one for now. What is it? Just fix it in your mind. What would your life look like if you surrendered just that one part for now into the hands of your Savior? Jesus died for that gap. You just haven't let him become the Savior of that gap yet. Imagine what his strength could do in your life if that gap wasn't getting in the way. Imagine the blessing as the Holy Spirit fills the empty space, the loss of that part of your gap leaves. I know it might sound a bit simplistic. Our lives are pretty complex. After all, we have that tragic childhood still haunting every decision we make. And our need to be right refuses to let that person who hurt you off the hook what would people think if they knew all of my secrets? So, oh, and then there's the money thing. If it all belongs to him, how will I pay my bills? And then there's the work it will take to change, to keep surrendering it daily so we can grow. It's overwhelming. So why start? You know what I'm talking about. Excuse after excuse after excuse. We have to just away, justify our lives away somehow. And we generally make things harder than they should be, don't we? That's the way we build moats around the tiny little kingdom we call our lives. Moats that, by the way, Jesus won't cross unless you ask him. So let's just keep it simple. Surrender that itty-bitty piece of your gap and see what he does with it. You might be surprised. He could rebuild that part of your life into a formidable work of his glory. You don't know what will happen when you surrender. No one does. God begins a new work that bears fruit in your life at some point in the future. Your, your surrendered life could be the next Japanese juggernaut. And while no one knows what will happen through surrender, we can know the how that will happen through surrender. No one knows at the point of surrender what the blessing of surrender will be. If that doesn't motivate you to surrender your gap, maybe this will. That lad who walked into a camp filled with fear, cowering at the sound of Goliath's voice, lived a life filled with the blessings that come with a surrendered life. No, his life wasn't perfect. He wasn't perfect. Like the Apostle Paul, David experienced some incredible challenges on his journey. Some were the consequences of his sin, some the ripple effects of the sin of others, because sin always, uh, that's, sin always ripples out and affects others, both directly and indirectly. But through every trial and triumph, David walked in the confident trust of the God he served. With songwriting as one of his many talents, he penned lyrics that have become so familiar to us that we've overlooked the message embedded in them. Which brings us finally 
to Psalm 23. Today, we begin a new series that we've called Beautiful Surrender, the blessing of a Psalm 23 life. Psalm 23 is the most well-known psalm inside and outside of the church. In particular, the words of verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, have comforted millions through the ages, especially at funerals. And while I, I certainly wouldn't want to take away from the comfort of anyone when they are grieving the loss of a loved one or facing a challenging season in their lives, Psalm 23 isn't a funeral psalm. It's a psalm describing the blessing that comes through a fully surrendered life. It gives us a picture of what we can expect when we surrender. These simple words will motivate us to close our surrender gap so that we can claim the promises that it, that the, of blessing that we find there. And as we'll see over the next four weeks, that promised blessing is how the Apostle Paul can experience such hardship and still call his life blessed. If you've been in the church most of your life like I have, you probably memorized this or at least tried to as a kid. My Sunday school classes were big on Bible memorization, and when I first memorized it, it was in the old school King James Version with makeths and leadeths and restoreths, which leads me to believe that King, Jake, King James had a lisp. <laughs> Years ago, I updated those memorized words in the original New, New International Version, which has changed since then. And when you add in the New Living Translation, which is what I usually teach from when I recite it today, I don't know if I'm coming or going. It's become a mishmash that I call the KJV, NIV, NLT version of the Bible. But this psalm is important enough to put some memorization effort into. So we're going to start today. I've given you a memory verse card with Psalm 23 printed on it. You can put that on your fridge or use it as a bookmark. Put it someplace where you can read it at least once every day this month. I have extras in the back if you want one for work and home or whatever you want to do. If you do that, then I guess that even those of you who say, I can't memorize anything, will have it down. In fact, I so strongly believe that every Christ follower should memorize this passage that here's, here's what we're going to do. Between now and the end of this series... Anyone who recites Psalm 23 from any version, word for word, in that version to one of the pastors will receive a free drink of their choice from the coffee shop. And here's, here's what I want to do as we close out the message today. Will everyone here in the room just stand? Everyone just stand up. For those of you watching online, use your judgment. If it's safe for you to stand, then stand with us. Let's begin our prayer by reading these precious words together. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid. 
for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. As we go to prayer, I just want to invite you to take a second, just in silence, and think about your gap, your surrender gap. What's holding you back? What are you clinging to? What are you afraid of? Maybe today is the day to give it up. It's also possible that in this room, uh, watching online, that there are people who, who have never surrendered any part of their lives to the God who loves them and sent Jesus Christ for them. And that's you. Today is the day that can change. All you have to do is say yes. I believe in Jesus. I believe that he came, he suffered and died and paid the penalty for my sin, which had separated me from God, made it impossible to live in the blessing of God. And then he rose again three days later, bringing life now and forevermore to those who follow him. All you have to do is say yes. The words don't matter. It's your heart that matters. You don't have to have all of your theology perfect before you decide to surrender your life. He'll work that out as you go. We'll help him. Now in this, in this moment of silence, whatever it is you're surrendering from your life to your bad attitude about work to your bad attitude about your wife or your husband or your secret addiction or your apathy toward your Christian life. Whatever it is, right now, just say yes. I give it to you. And Father, as we do that, we pray that you would show us how to leave it in your hands as we, instead of clinging to that gap thing, allow you to fill our hands with your strength and your blessing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions, on your own or with others, will help the truth of God's Word begin to shape your life as you grow to be like Jesus. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen, or you can call the church during the week. If you're just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. We count it a privilege to play a small part in God's perfect work in you today. The people who call Dayspring their home church make this ministry possible. Their faithful giving is proof of God's work in their lives, and they just want to pay it forward so you can experience the same life-changing presence of Jesus. For those of you who would like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. Until we meet again, I am praying that God would give you opportunities to use your influence for the glory of His kingdom. And one more thing, thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you connect with us. Thank you for rating us where that is appropriate. Even more, thank you for sharing our services with your friends and family. If this service was a blessing to you, it'll probably be a blessing to someone else too. God uses you to plant seeds in other people's lives. So keep sowing.